As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Whether you're looking for snacks for game time, steaks for the grill at dinner time, or sweets for any time, check out your neighborhood Trader Joe's for the best values on the best-tasting stuff every day. And Bruce, did you know... The Trader Joe's has its own Instagram? I didn't know that, uh, but I'm going to follow them soon just because, uh, you know what, you can't go wrong with Trader Joe's. Please do, because it's the best place to find all the info on your favorite products and the new things that you didn't even know you needed. That's Trader Joe's. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman for a little late-night edition of The Audible. We were recording this at midnight where you are? Yeah, I, I guess I'm on the East Coast, Eastern Time Zone. I was in Nebraska earlier today and just flew into Columbus by way of Detroit. So, uh, excited to go see some another Big Ten team, a little one that's a little further established than Scott Frost's program is right now. So I'll uh, be here till Friday morning, and then I go go home after a, I think I've hit four schools on this trip. So, so since the last time we recorded, when I was still in Alabama, you and I have both been to a bunch of schools. We should get into some of the highlights, but let's start with an item in the news uh, as of earlier this earlier on this day on Tuesday. So we know that Shea Patterson, the transfer quarterback from Ole Miss, transferred to Michigan, is seeking a waiver to play immediately this coming season, and he's citing the fact that he was, he believes he was misled by Hugh Freeze and the people at Ole Miss about the extent of the sanctions, the fact that a bowl ban, another bowl ban was a possibility. Well, on Tuesday, our friend Dennis Dodd reported that Ole Miss has actually objected to it. You know, they could have supported the waiver or they could have done nothing at all, but they are actually formally, uh, how do you, how it's, what's the, like the NCAA legalese way to put it? You know, Ole Miss is not going to say that they, this is my understanding that they are objecting to it. It's not like they're battling it, but they are taking issue with the fact that he is saying he's misled. I mean, there's a little bit, something that's a little, vague you know uh, i'll read the statement that ross bjork the ad had uh, put out on tuesday we would not oppose a waiver of the year in residence requirement based on a legitimate reason for any student athlete who wants to transfer from old miss so the waiver in question the way it was written we had no choice but to respond the way we did and anyone who left our program we wish them the best academically and ethical athletically and at this point it's not really our matter it's the NCA and Michigan matter at this point. Uh, what do you think of that, Stu? Well, I'm going to ask you what you think about it because you had a pretty strong tweet. Well, here's the thing. So, you know, I read Dennis's story and then I saw Ross's his, uh, comment. Here's my take on it. I got some blowback from Ole Miss fans, and that's fine. But my feeling is Ole Miss's contention, as I understand it, is they take issue with that he feels like he was misled at the time. And some of that, you know, when I've talked to some people about this has been, well, 
what's different now. Like everyone wants to base, you know, people are trying to base on what's known now as opposed to what was known at that time. Now, Dennis Dodd had reported in early February. He had, you know, a story about the screenshots that they, had, the lawyer had taken. Shea Patterson's lawyer had gotten, and some of the other Ole Miss players trying to make this appeal. And I guess here's here's what it comes down to for me. So Ole Miss is taking issue with, they're saying he was misled about whether he's being honest or not. And the way it sounds, to me, I look at this and go, okay, here's how this sounds. Ole Miss, which got caught cheating and had some really dubious behavior, and that includes Hugh Freeze, the personal conduct behavior, is now saying, well, this player shouldn't be made immediately eligible because we think he's not being honest. I mean, to me, that that just doesn't feel like the right way to go. I, I, I get it on one stance that, like, you know, if they're trying to, it's almost like an admission of something if they're saying it's this. But I just think it's a, uh, I don't know, I just think it's a, it's, it's, it's a bad look. I really do. It's like, what does Ole Miss lose, stand to lose, if Shea Patterson is cleared to play? What do they stand to lose? Nothing tangibly, but you know how this is. They don't necessarily want Shea Patterson to go on and, and have great success at another school next season while they're taking a beating and not eligible for a bowl game. Why? What is that? I mean, they're not going to win any more games or lose any more games whether Shea Patterson you know, plays at Michigan next year or not. It's not, you know, it's not like they face him. There's no, there's no crossover on that. They're certainly not, obviously not going to play him in a bowl game because they, they have a postseason ban. Shea Patterson, you know, he could have redshirted his freshman year. They had an injury. He played a couple of games, and you know, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's. I'm getting like a lot of, you know, criticism from Ole Miss fans, and I think people are like, wait a minute, you know, it's like I'd always. They felt like, oh, weren't you a support Ole Miss supporter? I mean, I noticed Mississippi State fans who go, when you, man, when Ole Miss lost Bruce Feldman, that's a, that's a bad <laughs> sign. I mean, um, that's probably because of Meat Market and Hugh Freeze's role in it. And I, I've never known you to be an I mean, Ole Miss. Do you think I'm, do you think I'm off base with this? I was just looking back at Dennis Dodd's story from February, and you can tell that one of the other recruits, Trey Nixon, was kind of freaking out in the weeks before signing day. And so he has a screenshot of a DM exchange with Hugh Freeze where he's asking him, if this is mainly about basketball and the other sports, then football's already dealing with the penalties, and why hasn't the Ole Miss, why hasn't Ole Miss or the AD come out and said it's not the football team? I would think that would help because it makes it sound like it's all new possible penalties. Hugh Freeze then sends him something that he apparently meant to send to somebody else and says, good PR response, get this in all the recruits' hands. Then there's also a screenshot of a, DM exchange between Trey Nixon and Shea Patterson, where Trey Nixon's asking Shea Patterson, hey, what's going on here? And he says, don't listen to any of that crap. This is Shea Patterson. It happened before Freeze was even here. The worst thing that can happen will he lose one or two scholarships for next year. Nothing serious. It's all good over here. I, I guess, you know, your point is valid that Ole Miss, you know, it, it's, you could say that this is kind of um, vindictive on their part. But we don't actually know what... petty. Well, okay, but we don't know what's in the actual appeal. Like, what are they accusing him of exactly? Are they, no, we don't... I, honestly, if, he, if, don't if Ole Miss know. got a copy of a document that Shea Patterson's lawyer sent to Michigan that says, this guy did, this guy lied about this, and this guy said that, right. and they completely missed... And Ole Miss is like, well, wait a minute, that's not how it happened. I would, don't they have a right to uh, kind of put that on the record? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because my, my thinking is, and look, maybe I'm missing the point here, and maybe I am, but my thinking is Ole Miss isn't going hit, to get hit with any more scholarship losses. They're not going to get hit with another postseason bowl ban. I guess what I come back to is what they did, and again, this is also, you know, Hugh Freeze, it wasn't just his issue in the, in the um, cheating scandal. There was obviously also he got fired for another reason that was, was certainly not for being honest. So I guess what I'm saying is, you're all mess. You're digging out of just a complete mess. Whether this kid is eligible or not, I don't know. I just think it's like, you know, you had no choice in this. Is this is this the one you're gonna you're gonna battle? So, I so I think what you're I think what you're trying to say is, if Ole Miss is trying to claim that Shea Patterson's not being honest in his 
recounting of events, like that's kind of hypocritical. Since, exactly. Since both the school and he got brought down by dishonesty. Okay, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. All of this, I think though, that's how it just looks because it's like you know I would actually understand it a little more. I'm not saying it'd be great, but I would understand it more if Shea Patterson played on their schedule and they were right. like, could play against him. But Michigan's in a different league and have nothing to do with him. You know, this was a guy who committed to you. It's like, I mean, do you feel like he stabbed you in the back by leaving and not staying through it? And just um, to be clear, um, just so people aren't confused, this is not a situation like where you'll, you'll read about where a school is blocking a kid from transferring somewhere, like they're not giving him his release. The NCAA can rule it however it wants on this, regardless of what Ole Miss said. But it probably doesn't help his case, right? If Ole Miss had just kind of laid out, they didn't have to give a response. That would have been better for Shea Patterson than for them to, to contest it, if you will, or to put on the record that they disagree with his assessment. End of day, all however you feel about it, this is all this all just goes to the point I've been making for a while, which is this was never a, a sure thing that he was going to get to play this season. I think because he's got an attorney who's speaking to reporters and Ole Miss isn't saying anything publicly. Yeah, putting pressure on it and they're making it seem like this is a foregone conclusion. Like, why wouldn't they let him play right away? He was duped by Ole Miss. And there's just not, as far as I know, at least in football, there's no recent precedent for this. Guys who have gotten waivers and been able to play immediately, it was for hardship reasons. It was... You know, a player's family member is sick and they want to transfer back home, or there were some sort of um, issues of, of mistreatment, like medical mistreatment, or or something to that extent back at their former school. The idea that you thought you were you you were going to get to play in a bowl game and now you're not, and you feel like you were misled about that. I have sympathy for it. You have sympathy for it. A lot of people do, but I don't think it's a no-brainer that the NCAA will rule in his favor. Well, we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. On your website, The All-American, you guys had a story about Michael Weinreb over the weekend, which you know referenced our, our buddy Dennis Dodd, another one of his stories, as it related to college football attendance. I know we talked about it a little bit with Dennis. So there was a lot of story engagement on that. I looked at some of the comments. Did anything sway you in the reaction to that? So I just, first of all, we were just blown away by the reaction to that story. Sometimes you don't realize something is on people's minds out there as much as it is until the story comes out. And people, uh, a lot of people read this story and a lot of people commented on this story with their own, not like I agree or I disagree, but just giving their own, venting their own personal frustrations about why they've stopped going to games or canceled season tickets or know somebody who canceled season tickets. There is a lot of angst out there about the college game day experience and why they're just going to sit home and watch it on TV now. And I have empathy for a lot of the reasons. Uh, the most common ones we saw in there were, believe it or not, cost of tickets and that sort of thing was not all actually one of the most commonly cited ones. It was that the games are so long that TV networks wait until the last minute to tell you what time the game's going to kick off. We had people complaining about both games that start too late and games that start too early, as in 11 a.m. Central, of some of those Big Ten or Big 12 games. Parking... Some people, like their parking had been moved further and further away from the stadium. A lot, a lot of examples of the school, like, just taking it for granted that they can keep raising the price or moving your parking spot or making the tailgating more restrictive and you'll just keep coming back. And so people are starting to revolt. It's not, I mean, to be clear, a lot of these stadiums are still getting 80, 90, 100,000 people every week. But the number that's cited in Dennis's story, I think, um, is that it was the largest percentage drop-off last year to this year in at least a decade. So I was blown away by it. It made me real, you know, made me realize I should be paying closer attention to this. But I'm curious to start making some calls here and my colleagues as well. What are people in the industry actually going to do about it? Because I've seen recent stories over the last few years about, especially in when regards to student attendance declining, and that is a big deal. And I feel like all they ever say is, well, we got to make sure we have fast Wi-Fi. Yeah. Kids, kids yeah. want to be on their phones. we got to make sure the Wi-Fi is fast. I think you would agree it's about something deeper than that. Yeah. You know, a, a couple, before, uh, I guess it was at SEC Media Days, I had a talk for like 15 or 20 minutes with Rich McKay, 
who was really one of the guys behind the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and they were talking about fan experience. And obviously, you know, that's where the Falcons play. But and a lot of things where they tried to make. I, I don't know if this was one of the. Uh, I don't know if it was Wine Rep's comment or it was one of the comments, you know, underneath the story, but talking about like you know, how uncomfortable the seats were in the stadium and just the the creature comforts you get at home with a game. And I also think that this isn't, I don't know where this, we all have our own biases on it, but I do think the viewing quality with HD TV got a lot better. And I think knowing that you have so many more options on TV, as opposed to when we were kids, you might've only had one or two games on. So, you know, I, I think that I guess it's very personal. And I think maybe that's why you had such fan, you know, fan reader engagement. It's just very personal. I'll be honest. This is a, a topic that I feel like you and I are probably the wrong people to be weighing in too much on this because you and me even more so. But, you, you know, because we we don't go to games as fans. I mean, we we do in one way because we're you know fans of the sport, but we're not paying for tickets. And in my case, I'm not in the stands, I'm, you know, on the field. So it's just, um, I don't know. It's just, it, it's interesting to hear from people and get their perspectives. And you're right. I mean, for the, you know, the Chris Del Conti's of the world and the, you know, I, I think it's all, it's more of an AD issue than it is a, you know, a head coach issue. No, it's, but, it's, it's an AD issue. It's also uh I mean, I think everybody plays a part in this. Conferences. I mean, conference commissioners, yeah. Mm-hmm. TV to some extent, although I don't know yeah, that. Some of, the people on, some of the people on there say, well, there's too many commercials. Well, sorry, that's kind of the business. That pays here. the bills. Yeah. I, so. I think the one thing, and I wrote about this in my mailbag that goes up Wednesday, that I think everybody would agree needs to be addressed is the length of the games. It's, you know, the sport, there's so much more passing and... Up-tempo, which you would think speeds up the game, but it actually slows it down because the clock is stopping all the time for first downs. You know, games are now regularly going four, four and a half hours. Would you be in favor of getting rid of the first down clock stoppage? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, at this point, I don't even remember why they do it in the first place, do you? Just to reset the chains? Yeah, but, at, you know, at, well, the other thing is, you know, somebody said, well, halftime's too long. Halftime's not that long. Correct? It's really not. It feels long, I guess, if you're sitting in the stands. Look, I can remember being a student at these games 20 years ago, and um, the TV timeouts and the half times well, felt for they felt really long because we didn't have a you know you go to these games now and there's a video board and there's stuff blaring at you all the time. And back then, no, you were sitting in a, in a quiet stadium. But but that gets to what I wanted to bring up, which is I, as an adult, as a parent. I don't like you have ch- children who play sport in sports teams now. Like, you know what it's like to have conflicts on a weekend. I get all that. But what really has got to be so alarming to the ADs is why aren't students going? When I was in school, the whole school's social life on Saturdays revolved around the games and tailgating before the games. And, and that's at a school that wasn't like a football um, power by any means. You know, I went to a Michigan-Ohio State game in Ann Arbor. This would have been 2013, and the student section wasn't full at kickoff. That's Ohio State-Michigan. I don't claim to have the answers here. I'm two, a generation or two removed at this point from being in college. But that's got to be the hardest thing to figure out because if you can't get students engaged at a time when, like, the college is literally the epicenter of their lives, then chances are they're not going to be very engaged in wanting to donate money as alums. Right. I mean, one of the things that I think is feels like it's, you know, slowed down even further is replay. Yep. You know, these are ponderous at times. And it's not altogether new, but it's just, you know, feels like there's more of it. You know, it was certainly with the targeting call has added to that. And, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff they can do to trim the fat. I don't know if you're ever going to get it to be even as fast as an NFL game, but... I think that is, I'd be curious as to how much if they sped up the game and games instead of three hours and 45 minutes were three hours and five minutes, would people still go at the same rate? I'm not sure that they would. I think it would help because some of the complaints we saw in that comment section was, 
not just the game itself, but the drive there, the drive back, beating traffic, you know, it, it takes up your whole day. So if you at least could shorten the games and people would feel right, reasonably confident they're going to be out of there in three or at most three and a half hours, you know, it wouldn't solve the whole thing, but it would at least address that issue. Other issues, especially, you know, I, I, I'm not qualified to say how much tickets should cost. I think that varies from school to school based on demand, obviously. Uh, some of this stuff doesn't have a, an answer, but I do know that changing some rules to shorten the length of the games might help. Okay, let's talk spring football. Nebraska. You're coming just from Nebraska, one of the most excited fans. You talk about a place that will not have trouble selling tickets this year. Um, fans could not be more fired up for the Scott Frost era. What can you tell us? Yeah, you know what? I spent a couple of days there and a bunch of time around him and his staff. There is absolutely no doubt in that building that that is going to get turned around and pretty quickly. Now, maybe not this year. They'll make us. They'll make some strides this year, and then in the net, you know, within three years, though, there is no doubt of anybody in that building, starting with the guy on top, Scott Frost, that it's getting fixed. The players have such like. You know, it, it was it was interesting to watch some of these guys, especially seniors, their face lights light up when they start talking about Scott Frost. It's a really fascinating dynamic here. Now, I have a story that will probably be up in a couple of days at SI.com about Frost talking about just what a mess it has been for the last basically 20 years there and where they where Nebraska football went off the rails and what it takes to get it back. And it's a, you know, it, it's a fascinating little study that's going on there because when, when you talk to him, he was like, you know, I keep hearing about how the recruiting landscape has changed and blah, blah, blah. He goes, we got everything we need right here to build it back to where it was. And that's, you know, I don't want to hear it. Those are excuses. I don't you know, just, he was, uh, I don't know, just completely, sold this is gonna this is getting done can you give us a hint uh what what it what would be one of his explanations for what's gone wrong in the last 20 years one of the things would be completely botched leadership they got away they completely lost their way all the stuff that made nebraska great they went in the wrong direction from it when we talked to some of the players and i say we because uh your colleague max olson who went? Who grew up in Lincoln and went to Nebraska? He and I did uh, sat in on some of the, you know did some of the player interviews together at the same time. But uh, it was bad before last year, and then the the reaction from some of the players was it got way worse when the, Bob Diaco got brought in on defense, and then it was completely dysfunctional, and there was just it was very fragmented, and. You know, I, I think I knew it was bad. I don't think I realized it was how bad it was until some. You know, you started talking to some of the players about it. So, but in in some ways, you know, when for Frost, he took over UCF when they were winless. So he took over a program that was starving for change, and this program was four and eight and had just complete disastrous 2017. So they were starving for it. So. You know, he's he's come seemingly at the at the perfect time to fix it. And he does have some talent. It's it's interesting in that I'm not sure that he has less talent. He may have more talent right now than one of his mentors, Chip Kelly, has at UCLA. You know, I've seen both. And I've actually seen UCLA more at practice than I have these guys. I just had a glimpse of these guys, but you know, just from knowing the personnel a little bit and what they have coming back, you know, UCLA doesn't even have that. Whereas at least, you know, Nebraska has some pieces here to work with. I mean, that's good to know. I think the thing that jumped out to me when you said that, when you, the things you just said was the part about Bob Diaco being such a disaster. Because a lot of us saw that coming. He was a disaster at UConn. He gets hired at Nebraska he wasn't uh, a disaster at Notre Dame, though. He was quirky, from what my understanding was, but he wasn't a disaster. Well, here, no, he was here. part of a team that went to the national championship game at yeah. Notre Dame. But 
I just remember by the end of last season, he was blaming the fact that the they couldn't tackle. He basically uh, accused his his uh, predecessor of like teach. You know, he had to basically start over, teach them how to tackle from scratch, and that it was never realistic that they would have been better on defense to begin with. And everybody was like, "What are you talking about? Like this was <laughs> this is." And you're saying you think there is talent there. I think there is some talent there. Now, some of the talent is they have two really good receivers and a third one who's former five-star guy, Tajon Lindsay, who seems like he's really coming around and maturing, so that would give them three. You know, they have some guys on the defensive line who are okay. You know, it's not like they don't have anything. But, you know, this is a team that won four games. They probably, you know, had the talent to win six or seven. But, you know, look, he's got to find a, a new quarterback today or Tuesday, as it was, was quarterback day, you know, in terms of the media. So we got to talk to almost all of them. And, you know, he's got some interesting options. Adrian Martinez is a guy I've heard a ton of good things about, not just from Nebraska staff, but other guys who recruited him. Early enrollee kid from Fresno. And I'm not saying he's definitely going to win the job, but he's definitely going to be a guy that I think will be able to play a big role in their future. So, so we'll see which direction he goes in as you know, Frost will tell you, you know, in the last four seasons when he has been a uh, coordinator or a head coach, he has produced the number one quarterback efficiency guy in Marcus Mariota. Then the next year, the next number one guy in Vernon Adams. Then two years ago, there wasn't a guy. And then last year, he had the number two guy in Mackenzie Milton, who trailed only Baker Mayfield. That's pretty good. Four different guys. Three came at three were in, were number one or two. I mean, he's going to win games there. The idea that they can just kind of wash away the last twenty years and go right back to being Nebraska uh, no, when he was a player not, there. That, not sure about yeah, that. Yeah, that's not going to happen. He said that is going to take time. That is a lot of development, but. But, like, but I don't even know if that can even happen. Like, I don't know that Nebraska can be the kind of program that wins national titles, much less three and four years. I think they can win a lot of games, win the Big Ten, go to the playoff occasionally. Maybe. I don't know. Do you think I'm underselling Scott Frost? I don't know. I think he can do, I think he can do everything that Wisconsin is doing right now. That should be – that's a given to me. Well, let me rephrase that. Not a given that it will happen. But there's no reason why that, well, for any coach there, why that can't be a, a goal. That you, I mean, what does Wisconsin have at the end of the day that Nebraska doesn't? It's just that they've been doing it. They've hired the right coaches, and they have Barry Alvarez as the AD, and they've maintained this level for, well, for 20 or so years, 25 years. Yeah. Um, Barry, so I, I kind of brought that up. Barry Alvarez came from here. He saw what worked. He used Nebraska's blueprint more than Nebraska has. We should be able to outroot recruit Wisconsin. We're not any, uh, we're not near, we're not anywhere near a huge talent bases, but we're closer to it than they are. People say Lincoln's cold. Wisconsin is cold. Michigan is cold. Minnesota is cold, and so it goes on and on a little bit. So, well, he may be right, although and it he, seems like he's he taking says, a much. They're not installing the, the Wisconsin number, system. Yeah, we don't need the number one ranked recruiting class in the country. We just need a top 25 class every year, and we can develop it. And that's the big thing is the developmental piece. So, All right. I'm fired up. I'm ready. All right. uh, where, where else have you been lately? I started my trip at TCU. Got to see a Gary Patterson run practice. That is always a treat. A lot of guys, not a lot of starters kind of nicked up and not in spring ball, though. So, but they, you know what, they look good. They have some receivers who are young kids who I think are going to be really good. I mean, Jalen Rager's already good, but with some other guys, you just kind of noticed, and I think their D-line's going to be good. So, if their offensive line comes around, I think they, you know, have a chance to be a legit top 15 kind of team. But that's a big if, if their offensive line comes around, because they don't have a ton back. Well, first of all, TCU was a top 15 team last season. They, it seems like every year, they're the, they, no matter what they did the year before, everybody forgets about them going into the next season. They could be really good. And then this, I believe, was right after you left. They announced a big grad transfer. 
Juwan Johnson, linebacker who left NIU recently, will be playing for TCU this year. This guy had 98 tackles, five forced fumbles, and five interceptions as a junior. What does that do for that defense? Well, they already got Ty Summers back. He's one of the best linebackers in the Big 12. They have decent experience back in the secondary. So, you know, I think that just gives them another another good piece. Like I said, their defensive line should be really good. They're, they're still pretty young. But they have a bunch of guys who, like, I, I think this is, has a chance to be interior-wise one of the better um, groups that he's had since he's been there because these guys are young and they're just going to keep getting better. Ben Banigus back on defensive end. I had a chance to visit with him. He's a, he's a really sharp, thoughtful guy. We talked for a little bit. I didn't get a chance to talk to many other people there. But, you know, look, he always – Gary Patterson always makes it makes it work on defense because he prepares so well and those guys are drilled so well. So, like I said, it's, it's very interesting to watch him run a practice because no head coach is more hands-on than he is. As of today, is TCU your – pick to win the big 12 are you asking me no you're not my, no i'm going to pick the one that has will greer and should have the most so that's why i was asking because it seems to me that west virginia has already taken the title of off-season trendy sleeper pick nationally but also but in particular from the big 12 and i think they could be really good but i'm not I, I guess I don't I don't know that I mean Will Greer is great Dave Sills is great but uh, TCU has a more recent I guess what I'm trying to say is I've seen TCU do this in the last four years first with Trevon Boykin last year's team made uh, almost made a New Year's Six Bowl lost in the Big Twelve title game they've done this more recently than West Virginia has they have but they have a, they have a lot less pieces back fair enough. All right, so let's talk about your trip. We know we talked about Alabama. Then I believe you were going to Tennessee. I don't think we talked about you going to Tennessee. I know we have a lot of tennis ball fans mm-hmm. who listen to this podcast. So we talked about Scott Frost and his turnaround job. Are you ready to say, give me a time frame on when you think Jeremy Pruitt will have Tennessee back in the top 15? Oof. It's going to be a while. Talk to Jer- sat with down with Jeremy Pruitt, enjoyed our conversation, but I think it's pretty clear he's walking into a situation where he is starting from nearly from scratch. Uh, the cupboard was left completely bare by Butch Jones. It was a complete mess there. They obviously 0-8 in the SEC last year, and I got the sense that they don't get some, some really good grad transfers here in the next couple months. They might go 0-8 again. It's that you don't bad. Think Keller, Keller, they got Keller Chris. They got Keller Chris. He's not there yet, but you know they definitely need a could def, definitely use a shot uh, of help at quarterback. And he has won. He won a lot of games in the Pac-12. He ended up getting benched, so that wasn't a great sign. Some guys will be back from injury, but for the most part, this is a complete rebuild. This is not. You know, I think one unfortunate thing for him is that he is going to get grouped with. Because of the saving connection, he's going to get grouped with Kirby Smart. Hey, look what Kirby Smart did. He gets to Georgia in the second year they're in the national championship game. Well, Kirby Smart took over a program that hadn't quite gotten over the hump recently, but was still winning nine, ten games a year. Obviously, there were a whole bunch of future NFL players on that roster. That's not what he's walking into at Tennessee. This is a multi-year rebuilding project. But keep in mind, they won. They had back-to-back nine-win seasons in 15 and 16 they were awful last year they weren't awful the the previous two years before that they weren't awful the previous two years before that but the previous two years before that i'm just saying the previous two years before that are like those players are are long gone from the program but if you're talking about 15 and 16 you know that they had ranked teams that finished in the top 25 well the team in 16 the team two years ago like that was his window uh, that team was loaded oh, on defense. I, I agree. But... And they still managed to lose to Vanderbilt and, and lose four games. And then it just seemed like the bottom fell out. So I don't know what happened exactly. Some some real misses in recruiting, apparently. But the thing about Pruitt is it's become kind of a running joke now in the media that covers him. He never, since he has started spring practice, he has yet to mention a single 
individual player by name. You ask him questions about the team, he'll give you generalities. He will not mention a specific player. So Marquez Callaway or Trey Smith or he's not mentioned Nigel or any of those guys? No, he doesn't. Go read one of his. The school sends out the transcript of every post-practice press conference. He never mentions any players by name. He never, he never even, they can't even get him to say like, well, this position group looked good or this position group looked bad. It's just a bunch of, and I got it, by the way, with the players I met with who were kind of, I guess, got the company message. It was a lot of just like, they just, you know, this, this coaching staff's just about all about ball and they got us out there grinding and every day is just about getting a little bit better. It was just, you name the football cliche, it was recited back to me that day. So I think it's really, you know, the whole thing is kind of shrouded in mystery. Uh, At least you get a glimpse of it a little bit, I guess, in their spring game. But all I know is expectations are pretty low, at least for this coming season. Now, 24 hours later, I was on the opposite end of the college football spectrum. I was at Clemson. They um, have pretty high expectations for this season, as you might imagine. Yeah, I would imagine it. What? caught your eye or what what was something that you came away with that you, maybe you didn't know well just a quick observation from practice that is the only place on the tour that i could even watch practice and even then it was only about half of it college football programs are as you know increasingly closed down these days but you remember from this past recruiting cycle the offensive lineman jackson carmen Yes, I do. He the guy who Ohio State, Clemson. Yeah, he he spurned Ohio State at the last second, so he's there already. And I've I don't think I've ever seen a freshman offensive lineman that big. Just he's listed as six six three fifty one, but I'm thinking the three fifty one is on the low end. That guy's a monster. Now they already have a lot of you know I think they have four starters back on the O line. I don't think he's necessarily needed to step in and do what Jonah Williams did at Alabama, you know, some other recent highly touted true freshmen. But that guy will be playing soon enough. What's going to happen with the quarterback? I think Kelly Bryant will be the guy unless he gets hurt. You know, I think while there's all this attention and on Trevor Lawrence, Kelly Bryant what, didn't have a bad season last year. He had a bad bowl game in the semifinals. But he did pretty well. He's a senior. You know, he's not a, you know, you're talking about, this isn't like uh, Georgia last year where Jake Fromm came in and, and took the job from Jacob Eason. Only after Jacob Eason got hurt, it should be noted. But Jacob Eason was only a year ahead of him. I mean, you're talking about can a true freshman come in and steal a job from a senior who led them to the playoff last year? He threw four touchdowns in a scrimmage shortly before I got there. I saw Trevor Lawrence, I, I, there's no question, passes the eye test. The ball comes out of his arm. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful pass. But what is it? Well, we don't know, you know how much is he picking up the offense, how well does he read defenses, all that stuff. So uh, I think it's Kelly Bryant's job. I, I think that will end up being kind of a non-story, unless, I suppose, I, unless he comes out and really struggles early in the season. Can I ask you about Kelly Bryant on this? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm a little skeptical on this. The only touchdowns he threw in ACC play last year? I do not. Seven. Mm-hmm. That's not a lot. Yeah, he's not. Nobody would say he's an elite passer by any stretch he of had, imagination. He had 13 touchdowns, eight picks, and three of those touchdowns came against the Citadel. Nobody would say he's an elite passer. He is a really good runner. I think Trevor Lawrence is by far the more gifted passer. But Did anyone mention it comes Hunter down Johnson to more than that. He was a big recruit for them, too. Yeah, he was a big recruit. But no, I don't think he's in the mix, to not to start. Wow. You know, I think the question is, who will be Kelly's, Bryant's backup? Will it be, which, which, will it be, which of those five-star recruits will be number two on the depth chart? So that's my read on it. I think the most interesting thing about Clemson, though, is that all those defensive linemen came back. I asked Cleveland Farrell if, their goal is to be one of the best defensive lines in the history of college football, and he said no. The goal is to be the best defensive line in the history of college football, which I think we talked about when they first came back. Didn't we have that uh, kind of an open discussion about that? No, because we're about to have it now. Okay. (laughs) I I, I was thinking it now. What what is the – that's a great question of what would be the the standard right now. You know, I – Okay, 
my first thought is always when it comes to these uh, in terms of like our time covering the sport, I always immediately think to 2001 Miami. But I don't that know that defensive that line was the hallmark of that team by any means. Yeah, Miami actually had a group back in the late 80s that was loaded with like like high round draft picks. Okay, so then the next one that comes to mind is Alabama 2 years ago, the year that they had all those defensive touchdowns, you know, returns and it was Jonathan Allen, Dalvin Tomlinson, Yep, Jaron Reed, and then like the guys behind them ended up being starters on last year's team. But I think the problem there is that there have been so many good Alabama defenses that they kind of blend together. Like, was the 2016 one particularly notable or not? I don't know. Ohio State has had some great defensive lines under Urban Meyer. Florida, the year they beat Ohio State in the championship game with Derek Harvey and Jarvis Moss. These are the ones that are coming to mind. But this is not like, you know, say like you have a debate about quarterbacks or running backs, things just kind of immediately jump to mind. I feel like I'd have to really research it to, to, to figure out who had the best defensive line of all time. Yeah, like I remember there was a group Miami had where it was Russell Merrill and Cortez Kennedy, and there were guys who were like second-round picks beyond them. We're talking about like top five picks. Russell Merrill was first pick in the draft. I think Cortez Kennedy was somewhere maybe third. It was just a ridiculous amount of, of – talent and in you know inside guys you know that is a good question i think that's something you know we'd have to look back you know it's weird it's just talking to nebraska about nebraska like jared cricket was a really good defensive lineman obviously at the same time with indomitian sue i don't know who else was on that d line but you know i'm sure we're going to hear from our listeners who will who will point out some really good ones i the the group i keep thinking back like i said was Miami group around 1990. They just had a ton of NFL players in that group. Georgia, when your guy Jim Donnan, our guy Jim Donnan was the coach, had Marcus Stroud, Richard Seymour. See, that's the thing. Like, I can name lots of those, like, tandems, like you just did with Sue and Crick. But all four positions, or all three positions, I guess, in some cases... Well, Gosh. Hensworth and Henderson at Tennessee were two monsters, and I feel like they had a, an end who was also an NFL, you know, an NFL draft pick. But well, look, Ohio State fans would tell you that their defensive line last year was better than Clemson's. So uh, it's all a matter of it's all a matter of subjectivity. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think again, I, if you want to use a barometer, like it'll probably be like how many of these guys ended up as first round picks. Well, and so I think with this with this Clemson team, and you know, we'll see after this coming draft, when the early, early projections start coming out, where they all fall. But I think we would both assume Christian Wilkins and Dexter Lawrence will be high first-round picks. We think, although, remember, what we heard was they weren't going to be, that uh, Christian Wilkins didn't get a first-round grade, which was surprising to hear that. I think Cleveland Farrell did, but the fourth one, Austin Bryant, like, I, I got the sense that was never even realistic that he would come out early. So, but still, if you had three first-round picks and then, like, a third-round pick, that'd still be pretty darn good. Oh, no. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt. It is a awesome group. So, um, Dallas Sweeney told me that, um, you know, usually coaches, they have at least some, like, well, if we don't get better here, he said, yeah, we have uh, talent, depth, and experience at every position on the field. The, I think the only slight concern they, they have is, Brent Venables at least, depth at cornerback. That's their, like, they feel like they, they, they can count on the two guys that are going to start, but not much beyond that right now. But there's freshmen coming in that could be those guys. So that team doesn't make the playoffs. Something went wrong because they're talented, they're experienced, and their schedule, if you look at it, pretty darn manageable because the team that is usually their greatest adversary in the season, Florida State, I think they'll be better than they were last year, but I don't think that's going to be the kind of game it's been in the past. Louisville doesn't have Lamar Jackson. They don't play either Miami or Virginia Tech from the other side. So, you know, you talked about Alabama's schedule last week. Look at Clemson's. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. And that was your last stop? Or did we talk? Uh, I also went to Georgia, but I don't really have any great insight from that one. I did visit with Kirby Smart. And I'm going to save that for a story I have going up on the All-American on Thursday. Uh, that's another one where there's 
the established fresh quarterback who had a great freshman season having to fend off the next guy in Justin Fields. I think that one's a little less obvious how it'll play out, but you still think it would take something pretty extraordinary for the guy who led the team almost to the national championship as a true freshman to lose the job going into the next season. I mean, did you uh, did you get a chance to talk to any of the quarterbacks? No, you know, the quarterbacks were not made available to that point in the spring, and then as soon as I left, they made Jake Fromm available for the first time. It's, uh, you know... It's like I said earlier, media access gets harder and harder every year at a lot of these places. And Georgia has become one of the extreme ones where, you know, I got to sit down with Kirby Smart, and I appreciate that. Uh, But with players, like, I didn't know until I showed up that day which players, if any, I was going to get to talk to. I've been told that's the same way for the beat reporters. Like, they come to practice, they know they'll get to talk to some players after, but they don't know who. And then, of course, like Saban, all Kirby Smart's assistants are off limits, so... Hard to realize. That's why I don't really have much to share with you on this podcast from that visit. I didn't watch practice. I didn't talk to any assistants. I talked to two players and Kirby Smart. Okay. Well, uh, on the next edition of the Audible, I can talk about my trip to Ohio State, talk about the Buckeyes. That's probably about it. Can we hit some emails real quick? Yes, we can. As always, you can send your emails to the Audible Pod at gmail.com. This one is from Mike in Houston who says, Stu and Bruce. First of all, huge fans of the podcast. I couldn't imagine my commute or getting through the offseason without it. And also, The Athletic is incredible. Thank you, Mike. Uh, he would like to know his thoughts on the following. Brett Bielema earned a reputation in the 2014 and 15 seasons for having teams at Arkansas that you did not want to face in November or bowl season. What would you predict Chad Morris's identity slash reputation will be at Arkansas? Will his style of play be unique enough to distinguish himself from the rest of the offenses around the country? You know, what he's had a reputation for is is developing big play receivers, you know, and being a good game game caller. I don't know how it's going to translate. I think we talked a little bit. You know, you guys had a story on your site from Jason Kersey about John Chavis as a defensive coordinator and taking over there. I don't know. I am... People aren't feeling great about that hire. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I think he's a pretty good coach. I just think that's a, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm a little hesitant to say, you know, Bielham is a really good coach. He did really well at Wisconsin. He seemed to be doing a lot of the right things. I thought he had some good, good staff hires, and it still didn't work. So... I don't know. Are you looking at Chad Morris and thinking it's going to work? And well, the, so I think we talked about this at the time. I like the hire from a recruiting standpoint because I think for Arkansas to have success, they've got to recruit well in Texas. They can't realistically expect to beat most of the SEC in the eastern part of that conference. But Texas is loaded with players, obviously, and Chad Morris was a high school coach there, and he coached at SMU. So I like it from that standpoint. But in terms of what he's going to do from an X's and O's perspective, I think Mike's concern is legitimate. I don't know exactly what's going to be so different about that. Offense has worked, to be clear. Worked at Clemson, worked at SMU towards the end at least. Is it going to work in that division against some of the best defenses in the country? I'm a little skeptical of that. What I'm more skeptical of, though, is John Chavis. And you're right. I mean, Jason Kersey's interview him with him was interesting, but there was like this assumption that, well, he was great at Tennessee and he was great at LSU and he just had a few bad years at A&M. But he had Miles Garrett, uh, a whole bunch of other guys, Deshaun Hall. Like, he had players and he could still never field a great defense. And my theory on that is when he was at Tennessee and he was at LSU, those were schools that at that time were running conventional pro-style offenses, not tempo it's really hard to be a defensive coordinator. Ask Mike Stoops. It's really hard to be a defensive coordinator at a program where the offense is running the style of offense, the up-tempo style of offense, and Chad Morris definitely wants to do that. I'm going to ask you this. So I know there's a coach you greatly admire who was at that program once upon a time, your old friend Houston Nutt, led them to three Western Division titles. Mm-hmm. Wait, really? 
that that you greatly admire him? Or no, no, I do greatly admire him. I don't. I think he may have won two division titles. No, he won, he technically tied for first twice and won it a third time. Oh come on! Is that like how A and M hangs up a banner from when it like won a co division championship you want in the Thomas Big Twelve? On your butt, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> I, I the job I think is clearly harder than it was. I guess that would be you know ten fifteen years ago. Because Saban is there, quite honestly. But what do we consider good now at Arkansas? Well, I don't think you have to go all the way back to Houston Dale. You just go back to Bobby Petrino. They had two great seasons there before he got on that ill-fated motorcycle ride. But the thing about Arkansas is they're not going to out. They're not going to out talent Alabama, LSU, and Auburn, and probably not A and M either, right? So the thought with Brett Bielema was he did that at Wisconsin. He won big with under-recruited players, he could do that at Arkansas. And that just clearly did not turn out to be the case. So either Chad Morris has got to kind of have like a, like when Hugh Freeze got to Ole Miss, but preferably without the cheating kind of recruiting surge, or he's got to just totally out-scheme and out-develop the other teams in that division. It's a tough, it's a tall order. It is. Bruce and Stu, Adam Dirks, love the pod. Perfect for killing an hour on the tractor each week. Larry Scott keeps feeding us the line that in the long run, owning the Pac-12 network outright will put the conference in a better position. This used to make more sense until we continue to see years of terrible ratings and slumping income compared to other big boy conferences. Paint me a possible picture of how this stance may actually ring true. So interesting that we got this question from Adam because earlier today, a story came out that showed that the Pac-12 network is there were thir- 32 networks in this study, and out of that, only four saw their cable rate, like their subscriber rate, average subscriber rate, go down since 2012. They used to get 30 cents per sub. Now they get like 12 cents per sub. That's because they keep they have added homes, but they've been out of market homes that get a very low rate. So I mean, the Pac-12 network, from a financial standpoint, has been a disaster. And because of that, people will say, well, why don't you sell it to ESPN or somebody? Like, why do you guys continue to insist on running this yourselves? Because you're not doing a very good job of it. And they keep saying, no, 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 this, is the, this has been the long play all along. We're going to be really smart for having held on to it. The only thing I can say is that the only, the only reason that may pay off, if it pays off, is that the next time their Tier 1 deal comes around in about five or six years, that if they wanted to, they could at that point, they could sell it. They could say, well, if you really want to show our major games, you also have to buy all these games in this inventory as well. But that's taking a big leap of faith. We have no idea what the TV landscape is going to look like at that time. All I know is that right now, the schools all hold an equity stake in a failing network. So... I don't have a I don't have an, an encouraging answer for Adam to like make that tractor ride go along smoother. It's as dire as he paints it in that question. Yeah. All right. Good answer, Stu, I think. I hope. I mean, I kind of felt like I just delivered a five minute monologue on equity stakes in conference networks. This one's for you though. From Tyler Hanley in Columbia, Missouri. I was just wondering what your opinion of Mizzou's hiring of Derek Dooley was and, oh, the, Im- and the impact <laughs> that a, quote, slower-paced offense could have on the team's defense, which was atrocious at times last season. Also, where do you see Mizzou finishing an improved, in an improved SEC East in 2018? I don't like the hire. He's never done it before. You know, the, and I think I've talked about this on the Audible before. You know, talking to some guys who were in the mix for that job, it was a tough job to take because of the financial commitment of being locked in there and the buyout structure. Now, the wait, 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 wait. what does that mean? It means it would have been really hard to get out of there. Um, so they were offering something. They were making. They wanted their assistants to agree to something that other schools don't do. It was a very sticky job. Let's that's a job situation. It was not. It was not ultimately desirable. Now, the desirable part is Drew Locke is a talented quarterback, and you have a chance to have your fingerprints on a guy who could be a first-round pick after next year. But we have Derek Dooley, who who uh, Barry Odom decided to hire. You know, not experienced working with quarterbacks, not experienced 
as running an offense. Barry Odom also, by the way, was a defensive guy. So it's not like, you know, this is a case where it's Mike Leach or Mike Gundy or Dana Holgerson, where the head coach, you know, has a lot of offensive experience. That's not the case at all. I'm not optimistic about this just from looking how they finished. I also think that one of the, one of the potential downsides for whoever took this job is they had a run against some pretty mediocre competition in a really down, aside from Georgia, SEC East. So they put up big numbers. So whoever took over this offense, which was like seventh, you know, statistically, probably going to end up with worse. And maybe, you know, the worst could be 27th, could be 30th. But it's not, you're probably not going to get better because the competition you face is going to be tougher. So I don't know. I'm just not optimistic about that hire to me. It's, Do you think it could be the this year's version of Nebraska hiring Bob Diaco? Like Derek Dooley's going to come in and just the place is just going to implode? Like that'll be it for Barry Odom? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it would be that dire because just from like what I've heard of the Diaco situation in Nebraska after this week, but uh, I think it's going to be rough. I mean, look, let's, you know, when you go through their schedule, they're, I think they'll win their first two games and then they go to Purdue and I don't think they'll win that. And then they have Georgia and I don't think they'll win that. And then they go to South Carolina. I don't think they'll win that. And then they go to Alabama. And I don't think they'll win that. So at that point, I think they're going to be two and four and probably Georgia, South Carolina and Alabama on the road, the last two on the road, you could be physically beaten up after that. I mean, I don't know. I don't think they're going to a bowl game. I just don't. Uh, and as good as Drew Locke is, and as talented as he is, I just I think that was a that was a really questionable hire. Yeah, <clears throat> it's bizarre, and it's 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 interesting because at the time it felt like yeah, you remember how desperate things looked for Barry Odom, and then he gave that fiery press conference after a loss. I don't remember which loss that was, and then they rolled off six straight wins. But now you look back on it, and it was six straight wins against absolutely nobody. Lost pretty handily to Texas in the bowl game. And uh, Drew Locke is a reason for excitement, but Derek Dooley is a reason to temper that excitement. So I do think the division, as a, like the way I just talked about Tennessee, I don't expect them to have a big impact. Florida, I think, will be better. South Carolina. So here, just so people know, here are the here are the six games they won in a row. Mm-hmm. Idaho, bad team. At UConn, horrible team. Florida, Florida had already fired their head coach. Tennessee, they were about to fire their head coach. Vanderbilt, another pretty mediocre team. Arkansas, they were going to fire their head coach. That's a lot, you know, like that's getting a lot of a planet, a lot of the planets to align. Yeah, that was that was a lot of empty calories. So uh, I feel like we're not. I mean, they got they got beat by by two touchdowns against a Texas team that wasn't very. Good. I feel like Tyler Hanley is listening to this right now and and is going to unsubscribe from the audible because we're just being so negative about his team right now. But what can we say? Like Derek Dooley was such a, a punchline during his time at at Tennessee. He goes off to the Cowboys. I don't know. Does he get rave reviews he as a receivers, receivers coach? coach. Got to coach Des Bryant. And now he's coming back to college in a role he's never had before. So, you know, hey, could be could be the comeback story of the year. Derek Dooley, redemption tour. I don't feel like that happens very often, though. Don't, don't to be a comeback story, don't you have to be really good before you came back at some point? Um, well, what would it be? Like you could- <laughs> what story would it be if he comes in and produces... Like the number two offense in the SEC story of the year. This isn't like this isn't like Cliff Kingsbury all of a sudden having a you know or or you know what we could say David Gibbs if you know it would be a comeback story because he would he was a good defensive coordinator at Houston or or Doug Meacham you know if he gets Kansas rolling could be the comeback story because he was really good offensive coordinator at TCU. So you don't like the use of the phrase comeback? It's more like a the miracle story. <laughs> it's a surprise. Okay, I've crapped on, on Derek Dooley and our, our poor uh, listeners' question enough. So That's right, Bruce. Enough, the, enough of the Derek Dooley bashing. It's 1 in the morning where you are. You better get some sleep because I know you're talking to Urban Meyer tomorrow. Big interview. We'll reconvene when you return to California next week. We'll see you guys next time. If you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Subscribe to The Audible 
on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review while you're there. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018, Trader Joe's. We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. We'll talk about it for you.